Well, this morning we're going to be in John 17. We're taking a break from our series through Exodus to be in John 17, the Gospel of John. And if you've read this Gospel before, you'll know that John is basically saying this throughout his whole Gospel. He's basically saying, look, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what he's like, what he's all about, then look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's God's autobiography. He's God in the flesh who has come into the world to give life. And in this particular section of John's gospel, basically from chapters 13 to 17, uh, that is what's commonly called the, the upper room discourse. It's Jesus' last meal. It's his last night with his disciples, and it's covering everything that he taught uh, before he's arrested. And in chapter 17 particularly, it's, it's famously called the high priestly prayer because as we read in our Old Testament reading, Jesus has his people on his heart and he's pleading for them in this chapter. So here we get a rare glimpse into the very heart of Jesus Christ. Like, How can we say that? How can we say that we get a, a glimpse into his heart? It's because he's pouring out his heart in prayer here. And true prayer, if you think about it, it's as if your heart is a sponge and its contents, your deepest desires, are being squeezed out in prayer. So think about it. When you hear someone really pray, really pour out their heart to God, really pleading to God, you get to know what's on their heart, what they truly treasure and what they care about deeply. Um, imagine the common scene in a football game. Uh, players run out before the game through the tunnel. There's a lot of excitement, uh, band playing, all, all this stuff going on. But some players run all the way down to the end zone. Have you noticed this? And they take a knee to pray. Have you ever wondered what they're praying in that moment? Uh, what's on their heart in that moment? Maybe they're uh, the theologically astute and they're saying, Lord, uh, be glorified in this, win or lose. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a little less so. Maybe they're just pray, praying for their own glory, for, for touchdowns. Maybe they're playing for, praying for safety. Whatever it is, I don't know. Uh, the, the point is the performance, their performance in the game is weighing heavy on their hearts. And so they're praying it. But what if you overheard, let's say it's, maybe it's the star quarterback, the, the pivotal player in the game. What if you overheard his prayer and you got to hear him say, God, please, please take care of my mother. Take care of my mother. I mean, I don't know what your reaction to that would be. Maybe you'd be frustrated. Maybe you'd be mad. You'd be like, this is the star player. Like, get your head in the game. Um, whatever it is, you would have to conclude, you'd have to say, wow, this, prayer, this player really loves his mother. He really cares for her, and he's really concerned for her. Like, you'd be astonished that the love and care for his mother outweighs the concern that he has for himself given the stress that's on him in that moment. So in a similar way, Jesus is moments from his own arrest. And from there, he will endure the hardest thing any person in the world has ever gone through. And the most crucial events in all of human history are weighing on his shoulder. Those events are about to kick off for him. And so what's he praying in the end zone? What's Jesus praying? And to our amazement, his heart doesn't drift 
to concern for himself in this very stressful moment, but his heart drifts to concern for you. So we see when Jesus pours out his heart in prayer, what comes out is love for you. With that in mind, we're going to read our text, but first let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word which you have given us, which reveals your truth. It reveals um, what we would never dream to be true, that your heart is bent towards us in love and in care. We pray that you would, help, uh, with the help of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see your truth, which is in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 17, I'll read the whole chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your, present, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. For they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in, the, in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you, you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, 
I know you, and these know that you, you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Think back to that player in the end zone who prays for his mother. What would you conclude about his mother in that situation? You, know, you would conclude she must be extremely in an extremely vulnerable situation if, if that's weighing so heavily on his heart. Maybe she's sick. Maybe she's in the fight of her life. Whatever it is, we, we have to conclude that she's in a vulnerable situation and she needs, she's in need of divine help, divine protection, and ongoing care. Well, what's it mean that we are what is weighing heavily on Jesus' heart right before his arrest? Well, we have to draw the same conclusion, that we are in a vulnerable situation, that the diagnosis of the Bible from Jeremiah 17, 9 must be true, that our condition, our heart is, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And in fact, that, that Hebrew word that Jeremiah uses for desperately sick is actually stronger than what, our, what comes out in, in the English translations. It actually means incurable. Our heart is desperately sick. It's incurable, which means left to ourselves, we're hopeless. We're incapable of overcoming our own sin and selfishness. And we're in need of divine intervention, ongoing care, and divine protection. So that's the bad news of our, our condition that we find ourselves in. But here's the good news. If you're a believer, Jesus prayed for you. And think about this. Jesus is a person who is very good at prayer, right? We have to conclude that. He's, he's the Son of God. And if the Son of God has prayed for you, then it's a done deal. It's a secure thing. And so here's the big point that I want us to walk away with in our time together this morning. Jesus' effectual prayer secures believers' life and joy. Jesus' effectual prayer secures believers' life and joy. Or to put it more bluntly, because Jesus prayed for you, cheer up. We can cheer up because we're going to make it. He's not going to let you fall by the wayside. He's not going to say one day, oh man, Josh, you know, he's just too selfish. He keeps doing the same things over and over again. Like, I just probably need to cut my losses at this point. No, Jesus does not say that. I can take comfort because Jesus has prayed for me, and he's a person, again, very good at prayer. I can, I can take comfort. I can take joy that he's going to see me through. And so with our time left together, let's investigate Jesus' prayer in two points, in two parts. Uh, first, his prayer for his glorification. See that in verses 1 through 5. And secondly, his prayer for our protection. I realize this is a big section. I'm not going to be able to cover a lot of the, the, the great things that are in the text, but we'll just focus on these. So first, his prayer for his glorification. We see that in verses 1 through 5. Jesus lifts up his, his eyes to heaven, and he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So basically, he's praying, make much of me. Make much of it. Glorify me as I make much of you. And at first, that prayer may sound a little selfish, um, we, but we see from the rest of the prayer 
especially in verses 2 through 5, that this is not a selfish prayer at all. It's because as Jesus is glorified, he's glorifying the Father. He's giving up his life so that he might draw people to himself, that he might draw people to a true knowledge of God, and that they might have eternal life. It's not selfish. He's actually giving himself away to the glory of God that others might know and have life. And in verse 5, he continues on and he says, he's praying specifically that the Father would glorify him, not only in the work that he's about to do, but glorify him in his presence after his work is complete with the glory he had before the world existed. So that's an amazing statement. That's an amazing prayer. And it brings up some very interesting questions uh, that we can consider and only have time for two questions. So uh, the first one is this. What was God up to before he crea- the world was created? What was God up to before the world was created? Because we saw in that last verse, Jesus is speaking of his glory that he had before the world existed. So a friend of mine, um, when he was a kid, grew up in a small church in the south, and, and the church put on this children's play and the opening scene, the curtains were still closed. This booming voice comes out and it says, in the beginning, God was lonely. And um, from that point, it's like, well, wow, um, that, that's, that statement's pretty off. Um, uh, that couldn't be further from the truth, that God is lonely. Um, so it couldn't be further from the truth. God did not create out of loneliness. He didn't create out of a sense of need. In fact, if you think about the word need, need is a creature word, and it's, it's unfit to be applied to God himself who is self-sufficient. And so God is a trinity. He's a community within himself. He's not, he's not lonely. The trinity is, is one God existing in three persons. And so the trinity created, not out of loneliness, but out of the overflow of their love. And so this brings us to an interesting, interesting point. You see that in, only in the Trinity can it truly be said that God is love to the core, who he is, the essence of his being is love. Because if you had a single person God, he would need his creation in order to be loving. But that's not a problem with the Trinity because the Father has always been loving the Son and the Son has always been loving the Father, and the Spirit has always been animating the love that's between the Father and the Son. And so before the world was created, the Father was glorifying the Son, and the Son was glorifying the Father. So Jesus's prayer here is basically this, I'm a, Father, I'm about to finish my mission that you gave me. Glorify me now as I complete the work, and glorify me again in your presence, just like the old times. That is, after my work is done, raise me up and seat me again at your right hand. And so here's another interesting question that this, I feel like this text puts before us as we consider you know, this, this window into the Trinity. Um, if the Trinity chose to create from eternity past, then what, was, what is the point of all of human history? If the Trinity chose to create from eternity past, what's the point of all human history? Or put it another way, why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there something instead of nothing? The answer is, the Trinity chose to create out of the overflow of their love. The Father, put it this way, the Father so loved the Son 
that he wanted to give the son the very best gift a father could give the son, and that is a beautiful bride, which is the church, which is all those who believe in him. And so from eternity past, you could put it this way, the father gave his son a people, and the son gives his people eternal life. So let's consider that for a second. The big picture view of human history that the grand story arc of all human history from God's perspective is just like the best of fairy tales, except it's true. You are the long lost bride in the story. The bride that was prepared for the, for the son of a king, the great prince, yet you were lost in sin. You are, you are now held captive by forces too great for you. But did this stop the great, brave, and noble prince? Did the sin and shame of the lost bride repulse him? Not at all. His love burned all the more in his heart, and he left the comforts of his kingdom to brave the elements where we were entrapped, to defeat evil, to cleanse us, and to marry us and live happily ever after. That's human history. That's the story, if you're a believer, that's the story that your story is caught up in, which means if you believe in him, you're his bride. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And he's coming back. And every day is getting closer and closer to that great and perfect joyful fulfillment at the end. And so taking all that in, if if this is why the Trinity created, we can relax a little. Yes, our work is stressful. Yes, our relationships are messy and frustrated, frustrating and, and messy and confusing. But in view of this great day that's coming, these things don't have to suffocate our joy. They don't have to suffocate our joy in Christ. So to sum up his prayer for, for glorification at this point, he's, Jesus is essentially saying, Father, it's finally time. Let's do this. Let's do what we planned from eternity past. Glorify me as I obey you perfectly to my last breath to take the place of my bride and to die for her that she might live through me. So we see Jesus' effectual prayer secures our life and secures our hope. That leads us to our second point to consider. It's Jesus' prayer for our protection. We see that in verses verses 6 through 26. Um, So look with me. I'll, I'll pick up in verse 11. Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be, the scripture might be fulfilled. And skip down to verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So over and over again, what we see repeated in Jesus' prayer is this request that we would be kept, we would be guarded, we would be protected all the way to glory. Now, this may sound like a, a kind of a, a normal prayer request for someone to make, for someone's protection and care, but consider this from the disciples' perspective and what they are about to go through. In just a few hours, the disciples will all abandon their Lord and friend, and they will utterly fail. 
And yet Jesus is here. He's praying that they'd be kept, they'd be guarded, and they'd be protected, that they wouldn't be lost, that even in their utter failure, they'd be brought back to the truth and kept by his relentless love. So do you see it? Do you see this truth for yourself? That Jesus' prayer for your protection assures you that he will see you through, no matter your failures, no matter what embarrassment or disappointment comes in your future. So we can cheer up with the fact that we're going to make it because of his effectual prayer. And this is why Jesus says in verse 13, if you connect the dots, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he's making this point. He's saying, look, I am praying these things. I'm praying for your protection out loud for your sake so that you can hear it because I want the fact that I've prayed for you to cause you to be filled with joy and to be overflowing with my joy. Because I've interceded for you, he's saying, I want you to take comfort that it's a done deal. You can rejoice that I'm keeping you locked into me and I'm not letting you go. So Jesus really does want his people to be marked with joy, with this kind of joy that flows from the assurance that his love won't let you go. So I need to ask, what, do you know this joy? Are you marked by this joy? Well, what's interesting is what follows immediately after this verse, back to back, Jesus prays this in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we've gone from joy to persecution. We've gone from light to dark. We've gone from high to low. Back in back-to-back verses, Jesus just went from saying, I want my joy to be overflowing in you to, all right, guys, full disclosure, the world is going to hate you. He wants us to know both realities, and we need to know both realities, both truths, if we're going to journey on in the faith in this world. That on the one hand, he is standing on our behalf, postured to pour out his love, his grace, and his joy into our hearts always. But on the other hand, the world, because it hated him, will also hate those who follow him. And so if you're one who follows Jesus, you can expect joy on the one hand to flow from Jesus, but hatred on the other hand to flow from the world. And he so fills us with joy that we might be able to endure the persecution and the hatred that might come to us from the world. Um, This is illustrated for us well in the book Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, It's a spiritual, very famous story, a spiritual allegory of the Christian life. And in this story, um, the main character is named Christian. And at this part in the story, Christian has become a Christian. And he's, he's then led to the house of the interpreter to learn things that will help him on his journey from there to the heavenly city. So each room in this house is kind of designed to teach him a lesson. So he comes into a particular room in the house that has a fireplace. And in the fireplace is a fire. And there's also a man who's busily at work with buckets of water trying to douse the fire But oddly enough, the fire doesn't get quenched, but actually keeps growing bigger and brighter. 
And so this is an odd sight, and, and Christian is scratching his head. And so the interpreter takes him to the other side of the wall where he sees another man who's pouring out oil secretly onto the fire as, as the other guy is trying to douse it with, with water. And so the interpreter explains to Christian, he says, the man throwing the water represents the world and the devil trying with all its might to douse the flame of your faith in Christ. Yet the man behind the wall represents Jesus constantly supplying a stronger substance, his own love, his own joy, his own grace into your heart. And Christian must know this mystery for his journey to the heavenly city because both will be happening at the same time, just as Jesus prays in John 17. But the, the big point is the work of Jesus Christ in your heart is far more powerful than the hatred of the world. Um, Robert Murray McShane is a famous Scottish pastor back in the day, and he famously said, if I could hear Christ praying in the room next to me, I would not fear a million enemies. That leads us to the question, how differently would you live your life if you could hear the voice of Jesus pouring out his heart in prayer for you? How differently would we live our lives? And the truth is, he has prayed for us in John 17, and he is praying for us even now, ascended at the right hand of God, as interceding on our behalf. And so he stands ready to fill us with his joy, even as the world hates us. And so that leads us to consider another question. How are we to relate to the world, to this world that hates us? And Jesus is very clear here. He's, in verse 15, he says he does not want to take us out of the world, but he wants us to be faithfully present in the world. He doesn't want his followers to flee the world and live in a desert or a monastery, but neither does he want us to be so immersed in the world that no one can tell you apart, that you lose your whole sense of spiritual identity. So he calls us to be faithfully present in the world. He, Jesus wants us to stay in the world for his sake, to love the very people who hate us, to be rooted and growing in, in his word and in his truth, that we might be a group of people that display the hope of Jesus Christ. So this is a, this is a difficult calling that we've been called to. And so Jesus, in continuing to pray for us, prays for our protection, and he prays for our unity as well. He prays for our unity as a body of believers. And we see that in verse 21. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that the church would be so united that they'd reflect the perfect unity between the Father and the Son. And that, that that would be the testimony to an unbelieving world, proving that the Father has sent the Son. So the watching world, Jesus tells us, will be most persuaded by the truth that we profess, not by our eloquence, not by, I don't know, how cool we are, but by our ethics of love and our unity in Christ. And so with such a high calling... Like, we have to ask the question, can we actually live out this unity that, we, that Jesus is talking about here? To be one just as the Father 
and the Son are one? Well, Paul helps, helps us out with a helpful principle in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Um, he urges Christians there to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Did you catch that? Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Christian unity, Paul is saying, is not something that you create. It's something you already have. It's something that you realize. Paul is, is assuming that if someone is united to faith, to, to Jesus Christ by faith, then they are already united with their fellow believers by virtue of being united with Jesus. So that's because you have the same Savior, the same Spirit, the same faith. You are united. Therefore, he's saying be eager to maintain this unity that you already have. So the principle is this, that the more you realize your union with Jesus Christ and his love for you, the more you will realize your union with your fellow believers and be eager to maintain that unity. But what gets in the way of this unity? That, you know, that all sounds lofty and great and, and beautiful, but if we look out today, we, we see the reality of the church. How, what, what gets in the way of this unity that we have already but fail to to live out and the answer is pride pride it's me wanting to define myself by being better than the next person pride inherently divides because it's it's always comparing it's always competing and so it always divides and pride is the biggest distorter of our unity and we have to realize it's, it's in all of us. And the reason the church is not manifesting its oneness is due to my pride. It's due to your pride. It's me not wanting to own the places where I've been wrong, where I've been selfish. It's me wanting to look better and smarter and holier than the next person. It's me not resting in Jesus Christ enough so that I look to things, I look to my performance. And these things divide this is what divides, and, and I'm the problem. We are the problem. You are the problem. Our pride is the problem. Therefore, if the church is to manifest their oneness to an unbelieving world, that means that we must become humble repenters. We must become humble repenters. We must be people who are constantly, perpetually repenting of our pride, the ways we tear others down to build ourselves up, and only then will we, will we be truly showing the world and each other that our righteousness, our life, our worth does not come from our performance. It doesn't come from comparison to others, but it comes from the cross of Jesus Christ alone. So last thing before we close, look at verse 24. I love this part. Jesus, if you want to know what, what Jesus desires he says it right here. It's straight from his mouth. He says, I desire, and he tells us. So look to no theologian, look to no smart person. Like, he says it right here. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That's beautiful. The Son of God has just let us know what's on his heart. He lets us know what he wants straight from his mouth. 
He wants you with him for all eternity. That you might see more and more for all eternity his loving heart for you. And he confirms this again with the last sentence in the prayer. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Like that, that's a huge statement. The love with which you love me, the Father loved the Son. He says, I want to make that known to them. I want that to be in them, that we might realize that and know that for, forever. And so he concludes his prayer with saying, I want to keep doing what I've always been doing for you, to, make, to continue to make God's glory known to you through all eternity and to fill you up with his love. I'll close with this story. I heard a pastor tell a story about his four-year-old son who was very attached to his teddy bear. Took it, this teddy bear everywhere with him, wherever he went. And this teddy bear was originally white, but it had been dragged around so many places, it was now probably brown. And then there was one day where they went to the shoe store, shoe store to get new shoes, and um, they got new shoes. And when they went to go to bed that night, the boy realized... The teddy bear's nowhere to be found. They left it at the shoe store. So the boy was kind of in hysterics, but um, they eventually got the boy put down to bed. And first thing in the morning, the, the, the dad uh, went to the shoe store, walked in the front door and said, do you remember seeing a teddy bear here yesterday? And the workers kind of looked at him, like kind of concerned. So they were like, oh, that, that thing? Sir, we had to throw that away. So it was like they encountered a biohazard uh, with that nasty teddy bear. And like, we, we, got, we had to get rid of it. Um, and so the dad said, okay, where's the dumpster? And so they showed him where it was. And he jumps into the dumpster and starts tearing up and open trash bags and pouring them out, tearing open trash bags, pouring them out. And to make matters worse, this shoe store was next door to a subway. And so all the trash from the subway, you know, yesterday's old bread, tomatoes, lettuce, was all in the mix there, and it had been baking overnight in the summer heat. And so he's pouring all this trash out, and he finally finds it at the bottom of an old rotten pile of subway lettuce. And he grabs it, and he cleans it off, drives home, takes it to his son, and gives it to his son, and the son just hugs it and holds it. And so here's my question. Why would the dad love something that is so dirty, so germ-infested, enough to go through the dumpster for it? Why? Like, he couldn't have sold that bear for three cents. But that dad dove through the trash to get it back. Why? His son's love for it made it valuable. His son's love for it made it valuable. So you see how this applies to you. Your value is not in your performance. Your value is not in your best moment, and it's not in your worst moment. Your value is something that's external to you, something that's given to you, and therefore it cannot be taken away. Your value is the ferocious love of Jesus Christ that would go through the cross for you just so that, just so that he could rescue you back and wash you and have you with him forever. And so we see the beauty of the gospel that, that because Jesus has prayed for you and because he has gone through the cross for you, 
that we can cheer up, that we're going to make it. And because he prays for us, even now at the right hand of the Father, we can cheer up. We can know the assurance of his love that we're going to make it because it's his effectual prayer that secures your life and your joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth that you've loved us with a love that will not let us go that you have gone to great depths to rescue us, to pay the penalty that stood over us, to clear us, to cleanse us, and to give us new life. We pray that you would help us to walk and live in a manner that's worthy of that gospel, that we might display together the unity that you've called us to, that the watching world might see our unity, they might see our love for Jesus, the way we treasure him, and come to know the hope that that is in, in your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for our closing hymn, which is, O love that will not let me go.